Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I hope that you have had a productive, safe Tuesday thus far and thank you for taking time out of your Tuesday evening to join us. I'm Nathan Owens, sitting across the desk from me as usual to answer your questions is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who listen to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to come to your home this evening. Again, this is not just a program for us to talk to you. It is an opportunity for you to interact with us, ask your questions, share your concerns, share suggested topics that you would like discussed on the future episodes. Pastor, before we get into our topic tonight, I have a question that has come in from a listener this week. And the question is, Pastor, what does the Bible say about the following situation? After a husband and wife get divorced, should they abstain from sexual relations with each other? If they do have sex, are they committing fornication? What does the Bible say? Well, uh, this is a question that the Old Testament had a simple answer for that. If a person had divorced... Uh, they were not even to come back together legitimately. Um, it was not allowed ever to come back together. Um, but to answer the question, I have some concerns about the question itself. Uh, one would be, um, is this a legitimate divorce that the person has gone through? Uh, secondly, is it a biblical, did they have a biblical basis for divorce? That would be another major issue. And uh, thirdly, am I dealing with people who are professed Christians? Those are three elements that I that concern me. If there have been legitimately and biblically divorced, uh, any kind of sexual activity is now seen as adultery. It's, it's not. It's not. Uh, not uh, even adultery is seen as fornication because they need a married. Um, so the only biblical basis for sexual intimacy between two people is when that person is joined within a monogamous um, uh, heterosexual permanent relationship. That's the biblical endorsement of sex. All sex outside of marriage, a monogamous heterosexual marriage, is not only evil and sinful, but also an abomination to God. So that person um, would have to answer those basic questions. Was I legitimately divorced? Was I biblically, did I have biblical grounds for divorce? And um, understand that once you establish that, that becomes the criteria by which you decide whether or not you have intimacy. The other question that uh, concerned me about that particular question, Nathan, would be, uh, I find it strange that people would be married, then they divorce, and now they want to have sex. Uh, I, I don't think that that really seems to me a little bit um, twisted, because the greatest intimacy is marriage. 
and it seems to me that people want to enjoy the privileges of marriage and not the responsibility of marriage and and that cannot be biblical cannot be scriptural uh, so I, I don't know why they would be the think. I've heard people say more than once uh, that um, they get along much better now they're, di- they're divorced than when they were married. And that says a lot, quite frankly. It says that uh, when you get to see the person face-to-face 24 hours a day living within the, that environment, uh, the person is not the person you find at a distance. But that shows you that you have an artificial, superficial relationship. It's not a really intimate relationship. So it, it really speaks to the fact that there's not this bond between the two of them, the unity that the Bible talks about. So to answer the question, once you are divorced, you are divorced. You're no longer married to the person. And the only people who should be engaged in any kind of sexual activity are those that are married. So um, the answer to that is that biblically there's no grounds for sexual activity outside of marriage. And you are now divorced, so there should be no sex between you and this person. Um, if you want to get back into intimacy, well, marry. We marry, renew your vows, and and that should solve your problem. But your problem is you, you seem to make it on when you're far apart and when you're together. I don't know what kind of marriage that is, really, that you um, you just feel that you could get along better separated than when you're married. I, I think you need to find somebody that uh, you can really live with and you can become one with. That would be the biblical answer to, to this uh, situation you find yourself in. You asked a uh, number of questions there at the beginning, and one of them is, what if you, are you biblically divorced? What if you're not biblically divorced? There wasn't a biblical basis for a divorce. Are you still committing fornication? You're still, because marriage is two things, two things involved in marriage. It's not just a religious ceremony. It's an element where God joins two people together, but it's also a legal element as well. Uh, Whether it be the Old Testament or ancient times or modern times, when there is a legitimate marriage, there is some kind of a public proclamation that we are... We are not. We're not living in fornication any longer. Basically, we are now publicly joining ourselves together, and it had legal ramifications. So it's not just. That, and, and remember, the Bible tells you to obey the laws of a, of a government unless that law is contrary to the scriptures. And in Antigua, there are certain laws that govern marriage, and for you to violate violate those those, those laws and pretend that you are married. Uh, it cannot be endorsed by the church for sure. This is the problem with, um, I don't want to say this, but there's some people that join the Rasta movement. They don't have to get legally married. They can just shack up with, a, with their daughter and they're married. Who decides that they're married? They're not married because they're not legitimately married. They're not legitimately married in the sense that they're not legally married as well. So there are two elements to it. And whether you look in the Old Testament or the New Testament, there were clear indications of public union where two people were coming together to live as husband and wife and that was endorsed by those around that's why they had legal you can pass on uh, heritage to children etc etc because they were legally married those that were not legally married could not get the inheritance so I would say to a person that you have to be both biblically married and legally married otherwise you don't have a legitimate marriage one of the other questions you asked was is this marriage between believers what do you mean by a believer? What is a Christian? Well, a Christian is a person who has repented of his sins, recognized his need of forgiveness and pardon, and also uh, see that Christ is the only uh, provided 
redemption for people who put their faith and trust in him. So a Christian is a person who turns away from their sin and repentance and then turn to Jesus Christ for salvation and put their faith and trust in his finished work on the cross, that is his death and his resurrection. That is substantially what a Christian is. Everything else flows out of that. After you become a Christian, of course, you should be baptized, you should become part of a church, and you should serve the Lord using your gifts in that particular ministry. So I think that's a very summation of what a, a Christian is not just a person who comes to church or who just joins a church. A Christian joins a church, but people who are part of the church who are still not Christians. And uh, that needs to be very, very clear. It's a personal faith in Jesus Christ, but it also has to be that element of repentance and turning away from sin. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. And if you have a question, we would love to answer it from a biblical perspective. You can call and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Or you can send your question in on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Go to the, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then right there in the comments section, you can type out your question, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. It is Tuesday evening. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.40, and we are thankful that you are listening to That's Truth. But we don't want it to be just you or your family listening. Go ahead and send a message to maybe a coworker, maybe a friend, a family member that you haven't talked to for a while or haven't seen for a while. They don't even have to be in the Caribbean. They can be anywhere. And if they have Internet, they can listen at www radiolighthouse.org We'll be here for the next hour and 20 minutes or so, and we are looking forward to you keeping us company here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We are going to start out a topic tonight that is um, very relevant in the times that we live. On one extreme, the topic is the Holy Spirit, and on one extreme you have those that are focused almost exclusively on the Holy Spirit. And on the other extreme, you have those that are so sure that they don't want to be part of that first group I mentioned, that they kind of don't discuss the Holy Spirit at all. So pastor is here to share with us a biblical balanced view of the Holy Spirit. Pastor, why do you feel it's so important that we give attention to the Holy Spirit at this time? Well, one of the reasons I felt that we should deal with this subject is because I think it's an appropriate sequel to the, the subject we just covered, which was prayer. And uh, the Apostle Paul <clears throat> emphasized that one of the aspects of true, genuine prayer is praying in the Spirit. And the word in the Spirit is in the sphere of the Spirit or under the influence of the Spirit. So I think it's important, <clears throat> having <clears throat> discussed pr- prayer that we follow this up now with uh, what role that the Holy Spirit play in the life of the believer. <clears throat> so I think it's just a legitimate uh, sequel to what we've covered, and that's why I think we should do it. The, the other thing is, of course, that in a real sense, the this age, which you call the church age, is perhaps what you might call the, the era of the Holy Spirit. And when I say that is this, if you look at the distinctive periods in, in church history or in religious history, you'll find that in under the Old Testament economy, the dominant personality is God the Father. When you come to the Gospel and the New Testament, you find that the dominant personality is the Holy Spirit, is, is the Son. But when you move from Pentecost until the end of the Church Age, that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and He becomes the chief executive 
for implementing the redemptive work of Christ throughout the age until our Lord returns. Pastor, we have a caller. Uh, go ahead with your question, and thank you for calling. Yeah, my question is in relation to the first question. Yes. Um, the husband divorced the wife, and um, the husband was the one who was cheating, and um, in the divorce it speaks to no reconciliation and the wife telling the husband to leave. I think that was it, yeah, and... Um, <laughs> No, there's no grounds for reconciliation, but the husband and the wife, the, the husband keep coming by the wife and all of this, even before the divorce, during the divorce and after the divorce, there has been contact, the husband and the wife have been in contact with each other. So is it that, um, well, I understand what Pastor Murphy says about divorce, is there, you're no longer. But there was a question of um, grounds of divorce. Now the husband is living with a woman and has two children with a woman, but they want to have sexual intercourse with the wife. Well, I think the woman would be very crazy to have sexual intercourse with him. Number one, <clears throat> she's endangering herself. I don't know if people are aware there's still 24 STDs out there that are sometimes very lethal as well. And uh, so I would, be, I would never advise, and I think, uh, in my judgment, she's making a poor choice if she uh, wants to sleep with him. Here it says he divorced her. He's now living with a woman who has, uh, what I've heard, he's got two children, whatever it is. Why then was he, uh, why then would she want to get back in a, a situation where she is surrendering her most personal self to a man like that, where there's no future in that relationship? That, that bothers me. Uh, why would why would anybody want to do that? I mean, unless I'm crazy in the way I think, but I would think that if I, if my wife were to do something like that and she went away with another man and cheated and then she's living with some, I still want to sleep with me. She got to be crazy, you know. Um, I think that this lady, if there's legitimate grounds for divorce and this guy's now living, he has shown his colors, quite frankly. If he's divorced her and now he's living with somebody else, it's very clear that he's not a one-woman type of man. No, no marriage will be successful with him because he doesn't mm -hmm. want one person. And I think she's making a, a great mistake if she were to follow suit. The other thing is this. She's divorced. There may be, she's biblically divorced. There may be somebody who might be looking to, um, would find her to, to make her a, 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 a happy wife uh, uh, in the future. But um, that person would be very reluctant to learn that, you know, she divorced and she, she's uh, still with the guy that she was with before. I don't have any man that would really choose a woman like that unless he just want a one-night stand. But if you're looking for somebody in a permanent relationship, you're looking for somebody with character, somebody that uh, has a sense of right and wrong and who can constrain themselves or rest restrain themselves and not be one that um, just suck up to this sexual activity that's going on all around the world. Um, so I think she's making a mistake, gross mistake, if she were to do that. And um, I hope that you can encourage her uh, to to ask the Lord to send someone in her life if she's not to be celibate, but not to surrender herself and sell herself so cheap uh, to this guy who probably was married to her before. Um, that is what I would think. And the fact that she, he was somebody else, in my judgment, it should be over for her as far as she's concerned. Thank is you. It, is, it, is it right if the person wants to, if the husband wants to marry, remarry to the wife? But again, why would you want to remarry a person? He's left you already. He's living with a woman. It's clear that no matter what you do, um, he wasn't satisfied with you. He was cheating on you on the side. He turned around now and he's living with this woman. 
uh, you know, marriage is about trust. And marriage, if you if you can't trust the person once, it's not likely that it's going to survive. And, and by the way, that's that's where people who who divorce, their second marriage doesn't even last as long as their first marriage. So there's a there's a, a, a there's a weakness in character that is there, that I would be very reluctant to encourage her to remarry him. He would have to prove himself for a long period of time before I would recommend that she go back into a relationship. Uh, but clearly. He has a weakness, and that weakness uh, is going to play out in marriage in the future. I, I, I would not advise her to do that. He would have to really, really spend some time, uh, once again, rebuilding trust and proving to her that he, he really cares and, and, and so on and so forth. But not, 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 not within a, a six-month period. Or, or It takes longer than that, and she's making a big mistake to just take him back. Um, I don't think he's a one-woman type of a man, period. I think she's going to have problems in the future. Okay, and how do you understand adultery? Where because the scripture says that a, um, a husband or wife should not, well, it speaks about not divorcing each other, but also in marrying someone else while your spouse is alive. Well, again, if a person is not divorced legitimately, I do, I don't believe that their second marriage is legitimate. I wouldn't be involved in a marriage where a person has no biblical grounds for divorce and go ahead and marry somebody else. I would never get involved in that. Uh, I, look, the, the, the thing situation, that, it, the situation yeah. before is a legitimate divorce. Well, if she's cheated, he's cheated on her, of course that's a legitimate base of the divorce. Okay. The Bible is very, very clear on that. Look, madam, what I would say to you is this. As a Christian, <clears throat> we got to get back to the Bible, follow the Bible, because we're going to stand before God and give an account. It doesn't matter what society says. doesn't matter what the government said on these issues. We are here to obey God at all costs. We're living for God because this life is so short, it's so temporary, and we're going to stand before God and give an account, not because of what the government says or the social system says, is what does my word say and what did you know my word said that's how we're going to be judged so let's let's mm-hmm. not, let's start living by the word of god and when we begin to do that by the way the world will once again respect us but right now the church has become almost like the world and we've lost the respect uh, of the world in terms of leading them in the direction of morality because the church has become so much like the world the world said if you that's that why would i want to be like you as a believer if you're doing the same things i'm doing and have the same mm-hmm. standards i'm doing and mm-hmm. that's where we've lost our clout mm-hmm. okay thank you thank you so much for calling we really appreciate that god bless you okay. Okay, have a good night and continue to <coughs> encourage others to tune in to that's truth 1160 a.m 92.3 fm and online at org. Do you have a question that you would like to ask? You want to know the biblical answer to a question from a biblical worldview? You can call 1-268-462-7420. The phone line is open and available for you. It is a safe place for you to ask a question. We're not here to belittle you, to mock you, or to insult you publicly. We're here to answer your questions, hear out your concerns from a biblical worldview. You can WhatsApp or text your questions to 268-782-1454. Yeah, and the other thing I would add to that, Nathan, I'm not, we're not, at least I'm not here for you to like me <laughs> on the radio. All I, would like, <clears throat> all I would like people who are listening to the program to say, listen, is the pastor in line with what the Bible teaches? Is that what God says? That's all I'm concerned about. I'm not trying to ingratiate myself into your favor and get your approval and your accolades. I'm not concerned about that whatsoever. I'm here to simply tell you what I sincerely believe the Word of God teaches, and I can share from God. God's Word, exactly what the Bible says on these matters. Well said. 
We are talking, uh, until we get your question, we are talking about the topic of the Holy Spirit. Pastor gave a brief introduction to the topic as to why it's important for us to discuss it. Uh, Pastor, why does the Bible use Holy Spirit? Yeah, I, I wanted, uh, I had mentioned two things, Nathan. Okay. I said it, I think it's a legitimate sequel to the fact that we dealt with prayer before and talk praying in the Spirit, the need of the Spirit's ministry. I mentioned also that, in a real sense, that this dispensation, the church dispensation, is really the dispensation of the Spirit. He's the chief executive that's now applying the redemptive work of Christ to men's heart. The third thing I wanted to say is that, in a very real sense, the the, the the person of the Holy Spirit is the point uh, where I think the believer um, has a more personal concept of the Trinity than, uh, for example, we perceive of the Father as transcendent in heaven. Right. We perceive of the Son as the one who is now ascended in heaven, sitting on the right hand of God the Father. Right. But in terms of the Spirit, He's the one that indwells the believer. So there's an intimate element uh, in terms of the Trinity that that is really not in this in, in the same uh, in our mindset. The Father and the Son sits on the throne of heaven, but the Holy Spirit has been sent to indwell the believer, to guide the believer, etc., etc. So in a very real sense, it. And uh, the Holy Spirit personalizes the Holy, the, 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 the Trinity, the Godhead within the believer. And then the fourth thing, Nathan, is this. You know, we're living in a, the age where everybody is talking about something experiential. They're talking about what you call, um, um, they want a Christianity that is personal and intimate. Uh, they talk about existential Christianity, de- dealing with the moment. And what better way to, in a sense, give tangibility to Christianity than that uh, personal element of the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul talks about the Spirit witnessing with our spirit, that we're the sons of God. Uh, In the book of Acts, it said that the church walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is becoming very personal and very experiential, and that's another reason why I think that we need to put emphasis on the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, because it gives tangibility to the and uh, person and, and uh, personalizes the Christian life at a level that is is not normally perceived in terms of thinking in terms of the Father in heaven, the Son in heaven, but with the Holy Spirit indwelling us and witnessing to us and comforting us and ministering to us and being the paraclete, the one that comes alongside to offer comfort, that personalizes it and uh, puts it in an existential moment for the believer in terms of living a daily life. So I think that's why it's important for us to really uh, look at the Holy Spirit in this regard. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, are those the same? Is that just King James English versus modern day English? Quite frankly, I'm a little bit, um, I don't want to say offended, but I'm a little bit affected by the word Holy Ghost. Because uh, the term ghost today, quite frankly, you, you don't have the idea of deity, you have the idea of some kind of a uh, paltergist spirit that um, almost sometimes you might even believe it's the, the, the human spirit or something like that. But there's a reason <clears throat> why it's translated that way. In the King James Version, the, the word ghost is the Anglo-Saxon word for spirit. I remember that the, 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 the King James Version, 1611 Version, was translated in England. I remember the England, uh, Anglo-Saxon people. So that word ghost was borrowed from the Anglo-Saxon language and put legitimately in the 1611 translation. It was carried through. The word spirit is a Latin word, and that was also borrowed from Latin when they did it from the Vulgate. Uh, that became part of the scriptures. But why they have it sometimes ghost 
and spirit is the inconsistency of using a word. I think they might <clears throat> use it sometimes as a, a synonym. Like mm-hmm. many times in the Bible, you find that one word is translated five different ways. Right. And uh, there are synonyms for the same word. And I just that uh, adds flavor and color to the whole, the whole matter. It makes it more, <clears throat> um, give it more poetic language. But that's the reason uh, why the word is used. <clears throat> holy, of course, when it's not the holy. Um, Romans chapter 1 talks about the spirit of holiness. And the reason why he's called uh, the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, two things. Number one, he shares in that divine attribute of divine holy, that God is holy, Son is holy, he is holy too. But I think more legitimately, it emphasizes that his specific word, work within the believer's life is to produce a life of holiness. So I think that is the main thing why he's called the Holy Spirit. Because he is, his job is to produce holiness in us, to make us more holy, to sanctify us. That is his mo- most specific ministry in the life of the believer. Can a believer become sanctified <clears throat> as he should be and be ignoring the prompting of the Holy Spirit? It's very difficult to see how that can happen. But number one, um, the two instruments or the two agencies of holiness is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And remember that the Holy Spirit needs to have something to use, and that is the, the, the Word. That's why it's called the sword of the Spirit, that He uses the Word. So they have to work in conjunction. Uh, it is hard for you to have a proper understanding of Scripture in, in terms of your application to your own life if you don't have the Holy Spirit helping you to bring understanding to Scripture. Like we, we've been discussing in our churches, you know, Romans chapter 6. Uh, most people perceive that baptism is baptism, literal baptism. But again, if you believe that little baptism, you're saying that baptism is efficacious, it changes. But when you understand that the Holy Spirit baptizes you in the body of Christ and what that means is significant. But that can only come as the Holy Spirit opens your understanding to what Romans chapter 6 means. People read Romans chapter 6 and, and, and figure out that it's referring to immersion, believer's baptism. But it, it, it's not that because it's talking about joining you to Christ, united to Christ in his death and his, and, and his burial and his resurrection. So um, it's very difficult for anyone to have a sanctified life and want to live a holy life with the neglect of the Holy Spirit because he is needed to bring the understanding of what Scripture because you sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. But the, the one that in, will interpret the truth, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. So the two are like hand and glove, like a, a coin has two sides. It's the same thing. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God goes together. Significant, by the way, Nathan, that in, in Ephesians, we're told to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Colossians, we're told to be filled with the Word. And a mm. word-filled believer is a spirit-filled believer. The two go together. You find that the two of them are almost parallel. Read the two of them together. Paul chooses filled with the Spirit in one case. The other, he said filled with the Word. So you can't separate the two from together. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the author of the Word. Uh, the Scripture is God-breathed. And holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That word move is like a, a ship sailing and carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the two of them go in conjunction. It's virtually impossible to become a sanctified believer by neglecting uh, the Holy Spirit. So as we are just in the last uh, 15 days or so of, actually less than that, uh, nine days of December going into the new year, I know a lot of people are thinking towards New Year's resolutions and you know, sometimes chuckle about how short people are <laughs> in being able to keep their New Year's resolutions. Yeah. But 
you're saying that if you are striving to be more sanctified as a believer, as you set your New Year's resolutions, you need to be having a balanced view of not only spending more time in the Word, but of growing your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Exactly. But I, I would say this. Um, you know, it's, I was saying, you know, it's so easy to talk on these subjects, the prayer, the Holy Spirit, but it really to discipline ourselves uh, in, in those two areas where we, we give our time to prayer, serious time of prayer. And when we're praying, we're not just praying off our cuff, but really realizing that the Holy Spirit is within us and He's to guide us in the will of God. And spending some time uh, focusing on asking Him to assist you in praying in the will of God, th- that, that, that requires effort. It requires discipline. Mm. And I would say, uh, if, if I could do anything for my own self and do anything for anybody out there, if I could get uh, people committed to those two things for this new year, prayer and dependence upon the Holy Spirit, I think you would see revolution in the church, revolution in people's lives. And those are two very, very crucial things. I, and I, I hope in some measure that we could be successful in this coming year, that we, we kind of make that the focus. I think it would have a tremendous effect in, in the church and the ministry and, and personal lives. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Hey, Pastor, good night. Good evening, Mr. Williams. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Good to hear from you. What can we do for you? Yeah, I, I, I am clearly. So, sorry, I didn't catch that. And see, I am on, I am on sea. I don't know you all hear me clearly. Oh, you're the sea right now. Wow. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm glad uh, you're there. Keep safe, brother. Yes, my brother, thank you. And let me tell you, uh, when Paul speaks about he speaks more tongue than any of the apostles, uh-huh. what kind of tongue you are talking about? Well, um, the apostle Paul was uh, at least trilingual. Uh, he was a Jew, he spoke Hebrew, but we also know that uh, Hebrew is a language quite clear to uh, Aramaic language. And of course, we know that he was a Greek, because when he was in the book of Acts and he began to speak in the Hebrew language, the normal the, uh, the normal language of the New Testament day was the Greek language. That was the, the common language of the time. So Paul spoke Greek. And then when he was speaking from a stage and he began to speak in the Hebrew, they said, you, you speak Hebrew as well? Yeah, because so he was trilingual. So in, in a sense, Paul spoke um, I mean, that was his gift. He, he, he spoke. And there's no other indication in the Bible that language glossolalia, which is the speaking in tongues, is any other thing than a, a normal language. Uh, the book of Acts clearly indicates it's a normal language. And the same word as used in Acts chapter 2 is the same word used in Acts in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So there's no, there's no specialized Holy Spirit language that the Bible talks about. It's a language where a person speaks that he's never learned, but yet he has the capacity to speak the language. Uh, so Paul was, was gifted in, in, in speaking those three languages. But again, we're not given all the full details of what Paul um, is in his ministry. I mean, Paul went to Asia Minor. He went over into, into, um, into Rome, uh, which would be the Latin language. Uh, he might have had the facility of speaking with the Latin language as well. But the important thing here is that the Apostle Paul had the capacity to speak in languages. And he himself said, I would rather speak uh, two or three words where I'm understood than a thousand words in a, a tongue he didn't understand. His preference is always to speak with the understanding to edify people. And uh, people who put this push on this, this, this tongues thing... Uh, as I said, tongues only has value if there's an interpreter. If there's no interpreter, it has absolutely no value because it doesn't edify anybody. 
So uh, I, I I don't know why um, I, why anybody would want to push it because it doesn't help in Antigua we speak English. Why would I want to hear somebody come and speak another language I don't even understand? Sometimes I have a hard time understanding Spanish people when they're talking because they speak English with a Spanish language uh, touch to it, and sometimes my ears are not geared to that. I would rather uh, have somebody speak very understanding to edify me and encourage. That's what the Bible says, quite frankly. And remember that tongues is to uh, or every gift that the Bible talks about, every single gift, read it in, in Corinthians, is for the use of edifying of the church of the church not the individual some people say well what if I get personally edified but that's not the purpose of the gift the gift is always a, a gift given to minister to, to the church and if there's no interpreter in the church they, they, they cannot be ministering edification to anybody so, so, so which are the tongues say that when you speak in tongues you edify yourself not the church which are the tongues you talking about well again that is what they say I'm not saying that's what it is, because the, the word glossolalia in, in Corinthians and the word glossolalia in the book of Acts is the same word. It's a human dialect language that the person doesn't know. They had never learned the language, but God gave them that gift to speak. And in cases, it was a sign to Israel. Read Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, that was a sign to Israel. Tongues was a sign to Israel, a special sign to Israel. God said to you, I will speak to you in another language. And, and that was a sign that God doing a different work. Uh, it's no longer going to be the Old Testament dispensation. He's bringing a new dispensation of grace. And one of his signs to the Jews that this is God's work was that they would speak in tongues. He quotes Isaiah in, in Corinthians chapter 40, indicating that that's the reason why tongues came in. But it's a human language. Okay, Okay, sir. Okay, then I understand. Thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. And thank you so much for calling. I hope you catch a lot of fish. <laughs> good fishing. Good no fishing. Problem. Okay, brother. Okay. Cast the net on the other side, brother. <laughs> the time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.05. We are still here for another 55 minutes. And we are looking forward to your continued interaction. Thank you to those who have sent in questions and called in with their questions. You can call and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 782 you can also go on Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and comment your questions right there in the comment section on your device, and they will get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. We are discussing the topic of the Holy Spirit as we await your questions. Anything else you want to mention in relation to the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit? No, I just, I just I think that they need some clarity there because I do feel that some people, you know, you have Ghostbusters and no, I'm serious. It, it, it's a that's one of the words I wish could be taken out of the King James and put mm -hmm. the word Spirit because it doesn't connote the same thing it meant then. Then it meant when you hear the Ghost, it meant Spirit because it's an Anglo-Saxon word. But now we we are able to differentiate between Spirit. Uh, Holy Spirit and, and a ghost, right? And I think that uh, sometimes by leaving that word in there, and people are not familiar with the the, the, uh, the King James Version any longer, the young people reading that, I can see them having a problem, uh, especially with now with television and, and being exposed for so long. So there are times when I think that the King James need to be 
updated in the sense that uh, put modern words that people can understand rather than keep people they have to go to a dictionary somewhere find some kind of archaic archaic uh, thing to, to, to understand what that word means it's like reading Chaucer or reading Shakespeare even when you're doing Shakespeare they have a, a glossary of terms along the, the length so you can understand what it's saying because it doesn't mean the same thing today yeah how do you account for the general neglect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit within the churches in general times? Well, I, I, you know, I, to my mind, this is one of the most uh, remarkable and astounding facts that the person and the work of the Holy Spirit is so frequently mentioned uh, in the book of Acts, for example, and the epistles. Uh, yet, uh, when you look at the church history in respect to the, the Holy Spirit, you'll find for almost four centuries very little is said about the Holy Spirit. And that is shocking. Uh, it is very, very clear when you read the New Testament epistles and read the book of Acts that the two forces of the emphasis in the Scripture is, first of all, on the resurrection, which was the basic fundamental of apostolic doctrine that you find emphasized. Uh, that was, And then the second thing is that the Holy Spirit was the one that empowered and guided the church in its missions work all over the world. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you go to the book of Acts, you'll find that in 26 chapters, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 14 times. That gives you an idea. Almost every other chapter, basically, is mentioned. Holy Spirit is mentioned. So it's quite surprising that this would be the case. But again, when you look at uh, church history, you begin to understand why this is so. And here's why. The first 300 years of church history, the attack was not on the Holy Spirit. The attack was on the, on the Son. There was constant attack on, on, the, on the doctrine of Christ. Was he God? Was he man? Was he only a man or was he only a God? Was he a God-man? What was he? That was the constant attack that you find in the first 300 years. Again and again, uh, the church had to uh, use its apologetic resources in defending the biblical doctrine of who Christ is. And, and that took up most of the time in terms of studying this type of matter because you know, a lot of the conclusions that came to in relation to the Christ and then later the Holy Spirit didn't get it one day and, 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 and get settled in, in the script. They had to study the scripture. What is this doctrine all about? Remember also that the Trinity is not something that is taught clearly in the Old Testament. And remember that uh, Christianity is born out of the wound of Judaism, quite frankly. So what they had to do was to trace the doctrine of the of, of uh, the Son and change the doctrine of the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament community, then came to a conclusion, what can we conclude as a result of this teaching, right? So it required a lot of effort, and that was done. For example, take the sec second century with, with a group called the Ebionites. These were a, uh, a Jewish legalistic sect who said that Jesus was the natural son of Joseph and he had attained only a measure of divinity when the Spirit came upon him as in baptism. So he was not God. He was a man on whom the Holy Spirit came. Mm. And because of that, he became more holy. And they didn't say he was deity. He was divine. Okay? But again, the church had to combat that. See, they had to discuss, was he only a man? Uh, was he God? Was it was the Holy Spirit that came upon him? Uh, was the Holy Spirit? All of that had to be settled. Then there came what is called the Gnostic movement. This is a philosophical movement that was the most dangerous movement in the second century again. And the Gnostics was trying to marry Christianity with Greek philosophy. It was like a trying to synchronize 
Greek philosophy with Christianity. But the, the, the Gnostics were trying to explain what is called theodicy, the, how, where you get evil from. That was the big problem they had. And they came to the conclusion, their basic premise was this, the only way to explain evil is that uh, evil is something that is eternal. So they believe in dualism. So matter was evil and spirit is good. Now the problem with that, the moment you say matter is evil and spirit is good, you've got a problem right now. Jesus, therefore, could not be a real man because he became mm. matter, see? Yeah. And they said, well, he was not a real man. He was a phantom. He just appeared to be a man. <laughs> no, I'm serious. These are the kind of battles that the, the church had. I mean, we don't have these today because these men worked these things out. Mm. And they gave, these are men that devoted themselves to, to the study of the Word of God like people devote themselves to any scientific subject. These are men that gave the whole time. And thank God they did put their brains down and, and examine it and, and thoroughly. And then, and of course, the, the other one is this. Okay, he was a phantom. But there's another form of, of, um, of Gnosticism, one called Docetism, which was a phantom. The other one's called Sorrentianism, which said, you know what? Jesus was a man, but the Christ came on Jesus when he was baptized. So he, Jesus and Christ are two different persons. See, Jesus is the man, Christ is the spirit. Again, the church had to battle that, I mean, and, and push back against Gnosticism because it was, you remember that in the book of First John and the book of Colossians, you have Gnosticism in this incipient form where John is saying, anyone that says Jesus has not come in the flesh is not of God. You remember that? The reason for that is because Gnosticism was saying that, uh, Christ was not a man. He could not be a man because, why? Matter is evil. He was matter, see? And the church, and, and Colossians also battles this, this kind of a teaching. So you had the Gnostics as well that they had to battle. But it didn't stop there, uh, Nathan. When you move into the third century, the argument was, there's a movement called monarchianism. And let me explain what that is. This is a kind of what you call... Um, um, th they believe in a kind of what modalism. Modalism is that there's one God, but this God manifests Himself as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's, it, he, in other words, the Son is the Father, the Spirit is the Father. It's just that He wears a different disguise. Okay, at different times. At different times. That was a dangerous doctrine. So you you don't have a Trinity now. Right? You don't have a trinity. But again, th that was designed to safeguard the belief in one God because it's hard to comprehend how there could be one God and three persons within the Godhead. So their way of dealing with that is say, you know what? God puts on three hats. He, one moment he manifests himself as the Son, but it's, it's still he's still the Father. That was the battle in the third century. So the church, after it saw one problem, it got a, because the central attack is Christ. And of course, the other one is Arian. Uh, which today the Jehovah's Witnesses are the ones who best Arian believed that uh, Arius believed that Jesus Christ was the first creature that God created. He's the beginning of the creation of God. See, and so they believe that he is a man, but he's not God. That doctrine is what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach today. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is is God. They believe that he is a God. He is some kind of. And the, the problem is this: if you ask them, "Is one true God?" They'll tell you yes. But if there's one true God and he is a God, it means he's a false God then. They don't know how to answer that question. So they keep using the term that he's, he's not really, uh, in other words, he's more a divine person than he is deity. Right? So the battle was solved 
in the fourth century, third century, with the uh, the Council of Nicaea that came out that Jesus is both man and God at the same time, 100% God, 100% man, that was solved. So you can see when you look at the first four centuries, the church hardly had time to really work out the doctrine of the Holy Spirit because central to our salvation is who Jesus is. If you can discredit the person of Christ, you have totally destroyed redemption and you have no no, no gospel. Uh, and, and that is why it was so important uh, that the church... Were, and then it was not until the Reformation, about 1,500 years later, that the doctrine now of the Holy Spirit was studied, especially by John Calvin. He is the guy that uh, perhaps brought to light more than anybody else the whole teaching about the Holy Spirit. And then there's also, along with... Um, with him, uh, they're the Puritans that are also responsible for getting this, this, this doctrine, especially a guy called John Owens. Uh, he wrote two volumes on the Holy Spirit. But here's another thing, Nathan. In the, from the 4th century until the uh, Protestant Reformation, the 16th century, here's why, again, not much emphasis placed on the Holy Spirit, because during that time of the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholic Church put emphasis on different means of grace. So they put emphasis on the priest. The priest had power, so much power, he could turn the water, the, the, the bread into wine and turn the, the bread into uh, the flesh of, of Christ. They put emphasis on the church. The church was the means of redemption. We can forgive your sins. You can make your auricular confession and we can declare you. Uh, and not only, they put emphasis on Mary, that you can get help from Mary. You know, she's closer to uh, Jesus than you are. And since he, she's his mother, you go to her and she will go to Jesus, he will go to God. So all of this emphasis, and then not only that, emphasis on the saints. Some of the saints had extra grace. They were so godly that they have a repository of grace, a bank of grace in heaven now, that you just need to turn to the saints and that grace you receive. And of course, don't forget the seven sacraments, that these are means of grace. So when you have a church emphasizing these different means, why do you think that the Holy Spirit then, they lost sight of the Holy Spirit, what is his ministry? It's only the Protestant Reformation that called people back to the Bible, and the study now of the Holy Spirit became very, very clear, and thank God that these men, these men did that. The other thing I would like to say, uh, why I think it's neglected today, Nathan, is that there has been an exaggeration, and I would call it a false emphasis, and excesses, and a lot of freak manifestations of the so-called Holy Spirit that causes people who are biblically literate to want to stay away from certain movements. For example, you've heard of holy laughter. You've heard of that? Yeah. Where yeah. The, the church is there, and the Holy Spirit is supposed to be coming to the church. The pastor starts to laugh, then the deacons start to laugh, and then the whole congregation laughing, turning over on the ground. I mean, that is stupidity at its height. But well, not only barking that, in the spirit. I, I, about to say, I about to say that you got barking in the spirit. You got you got the pastor got a man on his four knees, and he got a, a collar around his neck with a chain leading, and he's barking. Some of them are squealing. When people see that. Who wants to be associated with that kind of um, freakish manifestation? Yeah. So what has happened, we've gone from one extreme to the other extreme, and that is like, I think some time ago we talked about demons. Yes. There are some people, if you go to, you, I think you mentioned, you go to the States, you can't talk about demon possession because in their mind, that, that, that doesn't exist. Something from e Bible times. Yeah, even for Bible, for, for Bible, but not modern times. Yeah. And that's because we've conditioned our mind uh, it, it, not in a biblical framework. 
but because we haven't seen a lot of demonic activity in the West because the gospel light has pretty much, wherever the gospel has gone, it has pushed back the darkness and you don't read a lot about demons. You go to countries that haven't received the gospel, then you realize the spirit world. And because we live in an age where we are living off the fringe benefits of Christianity, we don't have these things happening. We don't pay attention. Same thing happened. And now that they, you've got all this freakish activity going on in different quarters, etc., um, Christians, uh, good Christians, have actually said, you know, we don't want to be part of that. But the answer to that is going back to the Bible and allowing the Bible to guide us in our understanding of the Holy Spirit and His role and not just abandon the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth, and the voice that you've heard teaching us is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church here in Antigua. If you have a question, we would love for you to ask it. You can ask it in a number of ways. You can either go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, comment right there in the comment section, and your question will get asked on air. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. I'll give you that number again, 268-782-1454. Or you can call and be put live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. As we continue our discussion on the Holy Spirit, Pastor, why have some people viewed the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force or an influencer? Um, I think there are several reasons why this is so. Uh, Number one, I think, is the word spirit itself. Because when you check out the word spirit, both in the Hebrew language and in the Greek language, it's the word, same word for wind or breath or, or for power. And uh, it's because of that, I think, that helps people to um, um, view it, view the Holy Spirit more in terms of uh, power, force, etc. That is one reason. The second reason is that the Greek word for uh, spirit in the New Testament is in the neutral gender. So neutrogender refers to those things, something that's a thing, not a thing that's a person. But again, there is such a thing as a grammatical gender. If you study French or German, you'll see that they have endings where it's either feminine or masculine, and a cup may be feminine or masculine because that's called a a grammatical gender. And in the Greek language, you do have a grammatical gender, and uh, that's why you've got the neutrogender. So I think by... Looking at the word spirit, looking at the fact that the gender is a neutral gender for the word spirit, that has led certain groups, including cults throughout church history, to view the uh, Holy Spirit as uh, a impersonal force. Or, or what. The other thing I think has to do with the symbols that are used in Scripture to describe the Holy Spirit. Uh, for example, he's viewed as a dove. You remember when Jesus was being baptized? If you go to the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's also viewed as the oil that would pour. He's also viewed as water, living water. And he said he spoke concerning the Spirit. And he's also called the fire. And remember the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire sitting upon the people's head when the Holy Spirit came. I think that, <coughs> that kind of symbolism uh, somehow has led people to believe uh, that the Holy Spirit is a force and their influence and not nearly a person but we got to remember that this is symbolic language and uh, it is teaching some basic principle 
but uh, remember also that there's a lot of language used in connection with Christ that is symbolic. For example, he's called the lamb. So that, that means a little lamb. Hmm. He's called the vine. That, that means the vine. He's called the bread from heaven that came back. Does that mean that he's bread? And uh, he's also called the light. He's called the way. Uh, so if you if you don't understand that the, in in language you, you've got symbols, but symbols mean something. Of course, when it said that he is the Lamb of God, we know what that means because throughout the Old Testament it's talking about the innocent Lamb that was sacrificed, and he becomes the human Lamb that is sacrificed for, for our sins. When he talks about light, he's the one that brought revelation to us. He's the one that brings understanding to us and it revealed to us. When it speaks that he's the way, it simply means that he's the way to God. It doesn't mean that he's the highway or whatever it is. And of course, when he's the bread, he's the one. That we live on. Uh, he said, as I live depending on my Father, so even you must live independent upon me. So I think once you begin to understand the symbolism of the Scripture, uh, that helps with the problem. And then the last thing I would say why I think this happens is because of the blunder in the translation in certain passages of Scripture. For example, in Romans 8.16, look there for just a moment, in the King James Version. Romans 8 and verse 16 reads as follows, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You see that neuter gender there? Itself. Itself. itself, Very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. And again, uh, that is there in the Bible. Then you look look at verse 26, the same chapter. Romans 8, 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession. Again, itself. I mean, you you read that, and you're not a person who maybe has access to the the Greek language or something, and it's in the Bible, and that's where the danger comes in. And that's why, Nathan, you must never make a translation an infallible book because that's an error quite frankly an error if that's infallible it means that God has an infallible an error in the scriptures and that's why no translation no translation is infallible quite frankly you will find some mistake in every translation no matter what you do you you try writing a letter Hmm. uh, that's three pages long and Take as much time as you want, and you'll see it either leave a comma, yep. a, a word. That's the way, that's human beings, that's, that, and that's why we need to be very careful. So I think for those four reasons, quite frankly, uh, help to explain why I think people have gotten off on this matter and uh, viewed. Of course, I think you know that the, the Jehovah's Witness among the modern cults, along with Christian science, they say that uh, the Holy Spirit is not a person. He's a power, he's an influence. And uh, that is their teaching, that is their doctrine. Now, when you have that belief, whether you know it or not, you have just destroyed the instrumentality, the agency that God has given to bring about salvation because the Holy Spirit is supposed to regenerate you. But if he's not a person, how how are you going to be saved now if he's not a person, right? So I don't think people understand within that movement the ramifications of saying he's just an influence, he's just a power. Uh, That's a denial of who he is. And of course, to deny who the Holy Spirit is, is heretical in that regard. Pastor, if I'm witnessing to an individual, and as we're talking about God, they are referencing God as saying, if there is a God, she would do this, or she would believe that, or she would act in this way. Do I need to rectify that from the very beginning, or do I just kind of ignore that and go on with the plan of salvation? What advice do you have? My, my thing when, when you hear that, quite frankly, is a feminist who's trying to degender the Bible 
and um, you know trying to my first thing with that is I, I, I you have to pick up in the conversation with the person where they're coming from um, if I think there's a genuine misunderstanding uh, if I think they're just trying to be naughty and just to create havoc and they really have no f belief in scripture no belief in God whatever it is so it would depend upon that the other thing is that if you're dealing with people who seem to have a different view on you and me about whether it be about Christ or Jesus or the Holy Spirit or whatever we have to agree on some authority that we both agree we'll, we'll, that we will apply to the truth so you have to decide uh, that f as far as I'm concerned the Bible which Bible you're going to use etc etc you've got to get that settled there are many good modern translations there's some very terrible ones as well but you have some very good modern translation that you can use with a person like that so I would say to a person like that well can you show me you agree that we go into the Bible okay can you show me the Bible where God is ever called she right that will disarm them almost immediately because if we agree that there's only one source of authority and then if the person said, well, that's the way it was translated, well, it's okay, let's go to the Greek language now, and you can get it interlinear off, offline. Let's go and let's see what the word is. This is, this is masculine, this is feminine, whatever it is. Mm. And that's where sometimes you, you need a little bit of understanding of the languages that will put to flight these people who keep making these silly mistakes and silly arguments. That, for example, I hear people say all the time, that the Bible is a white man's Bible and that the Bible is corrupted. It's the most stupidest thing I ever heard because any person with a brain could go online and see that long before the Europeans even had the, the Bible, it is there in the in the language, uh, long before Europe ever became a, su a superpower, long before Christianity was ever beginning to spread by the Europeans, it is there and it's still there today. So it's the most stupid argument that people make, but they're just regurgitating and parroting what they've heard before with no real substance or historical proof of what they're saying. Uh, but it's very difficult to argue with people if you don't have a final basis of authority and that you're going to get that established. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good night, gentlemen. I recently reconnected with a friend who rejoiced, stating that he does not sin anymore. When I pointed out 1 John 1.8, he said that that passage was directed to Gnostics and does not address us. He also mentioned that if we are unaware that we are sinning, this is not counted as sin. He is a believer. Pastor Murphy, what steps along with prayer would you take with helping him with the truth on this matter? Also, is it possible for a believer to hold this belief? Thank you very much in advance. Well, I would say the person living in a world of delusion and I don't know how he would have ever entertained that kind of a thought. He must have had some some unusual uh, experience, but he's living uh, a lie. Uh, he obviously doesn't know what sin is, to be honest with you. Any man could say to me that he never sins or he doesn't sin. Now, it's a man who doesn't understand what sin is. Yeah. He, he means he doesn't commit an outward act of sin. That's what he means. But sin is not just an outward act of sin. It's your thought, your word. And there's not a single person going through a week or a month that can tell me he doesn't have some kind of a thought that was evil in, in some aspect. That doesn't exist because we have this sinful nature within us. And then when you read um, uh, John, when he says it's only for the Gnostics, again, is a stupid statement. If we say the Christians were not Gnostics, 
if we say that we have no sin, he's speaking to Christians, not Gnostics. He is defending the Christians against Gnosticism that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. But he's also teaching in that passage, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not of us. He's referring to believers, not referring to Gnostics, etc., etc. So the interpretation is, is, is bizarre. And any person who reads that passage in Scripture realize that John is talking to believers. He's not talking to Gnostics. He is confronting uh, Gnosticism and putting the Gnostics on the run by showing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So that's, the, that's the argument against the Gnostics. But in terms of his teaching, uh, the believer, as a matter of fact, the, the book of John, First uh, John, is a book of assurance. And it lays down about five different principles by which a believer can have assurance because of certain things in the believer's life. And one of those things is that the believer does not habitually practice sin. Okay? That is one of the things that John says. He that is born of God does not habitually practice sin. But it doesn't say he does not sin. Uh, in the in the John's uh, passage, it says he does not sin. But in the Greek language, it's a linear tense, the present tense that has to do with continuous action. So uh, even that passage in itself gives uh, hints and indicates that the believer will sin, but it's not a habitual practice of his life. That's what it is teaching. So I, I, the other thing, if you go to um, another good passage, Nathan, is uh, Corinthians chapter 5, where you have a young man in the church mm-hmm. living with incest with his wife, uh, with his stepmother, and the church is boasting of how generous and tolerant they are. The Apostle Paul says, listen, I'm not there. I know this lifestyle is wrong. Put this man outside the church that his body may be destroyed, but that he may be saved, his spirit be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. That's a clear indication a believer can be sinning, but he'll be saved even though he's been allowed to put out the church and his body be destroyed. Uh, so I think that um, you're going to have to use a proper understanding of the book of John and show that it's not referring to Gnostics there, quite frankly, referring to believers. Uh, I think also you can go to um, that one in First Corinthians chapter 5. I would also recommend that you go to uh, Romans chapter 6 that deals with this whole matter of the sin nature. Uh, and how we overcome the sin nature. But uh, Paul makes it very clear, even in that passage, the sin nature remains in us. We never get the sin nature removed until we, Christ returns and we become like Him. So until the sin nature is removed, there will always be a, uh, a pull towards uh, uh, sin. Um, those are three basic things I would suggest uh, to you. Uh, I would perhaps even look at church history, and there's not a single saint, uh, that uh, godly man that the church has uh, seen that has been one of the great uh, saints of the past, and not one of them have ever said that they were sinless. Hmm. Not one of them. You can't find it. It's not there. Um, even the Apostle Paul. Not even the Apostle Paul yeah. would make that kind of a statement, right? Uh, that 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 um, he's sinless because there's no there's no sinless being except God himself. But one day, we know that when we become like Christ, the sin nature will be completely eradicated and we will not have this tendency. This person is living in a world of delusion. Uh, He's certainly under the influence of false teaching. And you can just pray with him and go through the scriptures itself. And um, and try to uh, show him from scripture that uh, that's not the biblical base. However, he got that interpretation that John is, is dealing that passage deal with the Gnostics is he needs to understand John is a book that's confronting Gnosticism that was trying to get into the church, but uh, his teaching is to the believers in the church, not to the Gnostics. Can a believer? Can a person be saved 
and still hold to that view? Yeah, I think it is possible that people come under false doctrine. The important thing is that you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and that you repent of your sins, etc., etc. Um, even John Wesley, by the way, because, and this is a strange thing, he has a book on perfection. And uh, he did believe that a person can reach a stage of perfection, even John Wesley. But again, who would deny that John Wesley was a true, genuine, authentic believer? Right. But again, you know, look, when you read church history, you'll find that uh, uh, there's always been issues on, for example, God's sovereignty. Both men, great men of God uh, in the past, Spurgeon was a Calvinist, but you will never read, uh, read, listen to Spurgeon's sermons or read his sermon and uh, think that he's just a Calvinist because when it comes to Calvinism, he preaches Calvinism. When it comes to uh, human responsibility, he preaches it. But again, he was a Calvinist. But a, a, a man of God, nobody would question that. Uh, John Calvin, uh, Luther, all of these. But all of them had their faults as well. You look at Luther. Luther said, for example, that James was a straw epistle. Hmm. I mean, and the reason why Luther said that is because Paul thought justification by faith alone, and James said a man is justified by works. But again, here's the problem. If you check uh, the passage that James uses, he uses that when Abraham offered his son. How he was justified by the work. But again, when was Abraham justified? Not in chapter 25, he was justified in chapter 15. By faith he believed. And that's where... uh, all human beings are subject to error at some point in time. That's why no human being should ever be the authority in anybody's life. The Word of God has to remain the authority. Because even great men of God who've thought the Word, some of them have taught heresy and false doctrine. And it's the Word that becomes the standard by which we judge them. And we, therefore, we must never put super confidence in any one man. The Word of God must be the final authority and not any earthly individual. If we don't go that direction, we are always subject to deception and uh, to be misled. I remember in the past hearing a pastor talk about how to interact with someone who says they don't sin anymore. He said, just stomp on their foot real hard. (laughs) That's a practical way of dealing with (laughs) it. Not that I would recommend that, but you're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth, and we are answering your questions from a biblical worldview. Time is 8.36 on this Tuesday evening, and as we await your questions, we are talking about the Holy Spirit. Let me give you the contact information so you can send in your questions or call in. If you'd like to be put live on the air, you can call 268-462-7420, or you can WhatsApp or text your questions to 268-782-1450. Or you can join us on Facebook Live and comment your questions right there on the comment section of the Facebook Live video feed when you go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Pastor, throughout, did you have anything else you wanted to mention about the view of the Holy Spirit and why it's been viewed as impersonal? No, I think I have uh, substantially given what I think is useful. Throughout church history, there have been movements that have denied the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Can you give us kind of an overview of some of those movements? Yeah, you know, I mentioned to you that it was not until the Protestant Reformation that really uh, the church devoted a lot of time to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I mean, really, really did a good study and a great study uh, on the Holy Spirit. But And I mentioned that uh, in the first three centuries, you really had the combat about the personhood of Christ, whether he was God, about his nature, about his deity, etc., etc. But even 
in the third century, you still had people that were now beginning to question the, the Holy Spirit, who he really was. For example, there's a group called the Sibelians, and uh, they thought that um, God was a unity, and he revealed himself in three modes. And as I mentioned to you, therefore, they're saying the same thing we said before, monarchianism, but this is a new thing called Sabellianism, where uh, he said that, you know, the Father is the Spirit, the Father is the Son, and just that he played three different roles and became an act in three different places. But of course, that all falls down when you come to the baptism. How can the Father, the Holy Spirit come, the Father speak, and the Son be there at the same time? So it's so irrational, quite frankly, but... But that was a movement. So this this Sabellianism, which is a form of modalism, monarchianism, basically, is the same thing. And therefore, they were saying that the Holy Spirit was not a distinct person from the Father. It was the same person. And then you had what they call the Socinians. That came about in the 1300s. Um, they denied that the Spirit, they said that uh, they find the Spirit as a virtue or energy flowing from God to man. So that's the same view of the Jehovah's Witness today. So from the 2nd, 3rd century, there was a leap uh, until the 13th century. Then that focus began again about the Holy Spirit. And, and notice that they're now saying that the Holy Spirit is a, a power, he's a force, he's a virtue, but again, he's not a person. So there were now coming attacks on that matter. And that's where, uh, that's during the Dark Ages. And it was the Protestant Reformation that began now to really study this whole thing. Let's settle this whole thing about the, the Holy Spirit and, and do a thorough study of the Holy Spirit. And that came about. Um, today, uh, going back now, we go for the 30th to the 18th century now, which is Jehovah's Witness. Uh, they're the ones that today that are claimed to be Christians, and they're the ones that hold to the same Socinian view that the Holy Spirit is a power, he's a force, he's an energy, he's not a person. The fourth group, uh, that I would mention about this matter is the liberal theologians. Without failure, most, if not all, the liberal theologians and all the churches that they pastor uh, consider the Holy Spirit to be a force or power and energy, but not a person. So when you're going to a liberal church today, and, and don't forget, I, I keep telling people this, when you go to a liberal church where people went to seminaries that don't believe the Bible is infallible and teach all kinds of errors. These are the people in the pulpit today. And the thing about it, Nathan, is that they're using biblical language. They're speaking of the Spirit. And you don't understand they're not referring to the Holy Spirit. The way you see as a person, in their mind, is is just a force or power, mm-hmm. but he's not a person. So it's a semantic game that they play. They use biblical language, but inject new content into it until you begin to question them. What do you mean by spirit? What do you mean by God? What do you mean by Jesus Christ? You will never know that these people are teaching error because if you discover they're teaching error, people would leave the church, people move away from the church, etc., etc. But they want the gratuity, they want the uh, service and you know, all the fringe benefits, etc., etc. So they keep using biblical language, but with a completely different eye. So from the Socinians, Sabellians and Socinians, and then you've got the JW and you've got the liberals, basically that is the, the flow of uh, false teaching about the Holy Spirit, that he's not a person, he's just a force of power. It started from the 2nd century, but it can be traced right down even to the current time with the liberal movements and a lot of the liberal churches in America and in England. Oh, by the way, um, 
Sunday morning, I preached on the, uh, the virgin birth, and one of our members, Brother Edwards, came up to me and told me that when he was in England, there was a, a bishop of York that was um, had come out and said there was no virgin birth as well. That, but he's a bishop. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he told me that the, there was a backlash that he, but he, why are you in the church? You don't believe in it. But again, this is very, very, very common. That's why in the Anglican church and, uh, and some of the other mainline churches, they are using language, biblical language, but a lot of those men in the pulpit are liberal theologians who have been taught in, 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 in seminaries that went away from the biblical faith, but they are now filling those pulpits, and they know that the people will not stand under the authority and under the rule and under if they know what they really believe. So they use the language, but a different meaning altogether. What would you say to the individual who's listening and says, Pastor, I find myself in a church that based on your terminology is liberal, they're not following Scripture. What advice do you give them? Well, there's a biblical doctrine called the doctrine of separation. The Lord said, come out from among them and be separate. So when you have a church that has gone away from biblical truth and is now teaching error, you can't... And by the way, this is the problem of Luther and some of the... Uh, who went in. That's why the Protestant never went far enough. And that's why you find that within the Lutheran Church, there's still elements of Catholicism because they carried over some of it. And they never fully... Luther's plan was never to separate from the Catholic Church. It was to reform it. But you cannot reform the Catholic Church. You just cannot do it. It's impossible to reform it. What about if I'm part of a church, it's not the Catholic Church, but how long do you stay in the church and try and reform it or to convince others? And when do you just cut ties and walk away? It's hard to say because I can understand the genuine concern that you've got family there, you've got friends there, you don't want to leave it, and then it, how, where would it go if I leave? I might be the only sane voice calling back people to biblical truth. But sooner or later it comes to the point where it is very, very clear that you, your authority is not winning anybody and you're perceived as a as a, um, a troublemaker in the church. You're always opposing what the pastor says or you're always opposing what the deacon said. I would say to you that there comes a point when you realize that Staying there is not helping you, it's not helping the person. Because if that person is teaching false doctrine, you're not being fed. You're leaving that place mad every Sunday. And it comes to a point where for your sake, family, your sake, your, your family, if you're going there, you need to move out of that movement. Um, and I think when you do that, it would be right and proper to go and talk to the pastor and say, let him know why you're leaving. So that if anybody asks him, uh, I tell him quite frankly if anybody asks you what this I want you to tell them exactly what I told you I don't want you to tell them another story that you just left because you found another church so I want you to put yourself in the position where you have to tell them the truth about what I, so that when they come to me mm-hmm. and they tell me that you told them something that's different I can tell them listen you're a big liar you're a prevaricator and you're not a man of God whatever it is so you, I think it's important to tell them why you're leaving and say that if anybody asks this is the reason I'm leaving and then I, I, I still feel that if you're deeply concerned about people who are there, you can still move out of that church and maintain friendship and talk to them, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe the fact that you leave might be an encouragement for other people to leave as well because they see that this man is really enjoying himself in his new church. He's now ministering. He's sharing his faith. He's a different person. He's more excited. He's not in this dread mood all the time. That might be an incentive that uh, maybe he's found uh, the truth that uh, I need as well. But I think it's a, a personal choice. 
But the Bible does say to you that you need to separate from people who teach false error. And uh, I cannot say exactly what that point. For me, that point would come when there's a, a denial of Scripture, inspiration of Scripture, denial of the deity of Christ, denial of the Holy Spirit's deity, etc., etc. Um, I could put it with some other things, but when it comes to the denial of the Trinity, and th- those are key areas, uh, doctrines that are cardinal and are essential, and believers should not tolerate uh, anybody um, deviating from those major uh, biblical doctrines. What about the area of the church just ordained a woman pastor? Oh, I can, I can, I can stand in a church where a woman was ordained as a pastor. It's very, very clear uh, from the book of Corinthians, book of uh, Timothy. Timothy, that uh, women are not called to have authority over men in terms of pastoral leadership. There's not a, uh, no one can read the qualifications for a pastor. Uh, And remember that that those qualifications are not written because of just the cultural times. That is to guide the church in all times, just every every word. And no one can read that and and say that a woman is designed to be a pastor. She's not designed to be a pastor. She's not called to be a pastor. She may be called to assist her husband in his role as a pastor. But, uh, and, and this has broken, and by the way, when you go against Scripture in one area, it's just a matter of time before you give in to another area, another area, another area. And when you begin to twist Scripture by your own interpretation and the cultural inter- interpretation of the time, the fitting with the times, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Who would ever think that you would have a church today that would uh, believe that it is okay for same-sex marriage? Hmm. But you got churches all over the place doing that. Who would ever think that it's possible to believe that a man can be born transgender? But that is what is being accepted today. Uh, who would ever think that it is normal for a person to be homosexual? But all of this is now accepted in the church on a, on a very wide scale, with the exception of the remnant church, which remains true to Scripture. But generally speaking, all the major denominations are now embracing this kind of, and again, it is based on social theory and social teaching. It's not based on biblical doctrine. So, but when you have surrendered in other areas, now you find yourself surrendering because you're now saying that the Bible is culturally interpreted and that it's only referring to the times then because you've put that, you're not accepting the literal grammatical way of interpreting. And that opens a Pandora's box where it comes to a point where you, be, you could believe anything. See? Yeah. So it's a serious matter. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We have about ten and a half minutes left in this particular episode of That's Truth. If you have a question, you can still call in. 268-462-7420 is the phone line to put you live on the air. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text, send your question to 268-782-1454. Pastor Murphy, what biblical proof is there that the Holy Spirit is a person and not just a force? I think the best uh, way of answering that question is to actually go into Scripture, search the Scripture, and see what is there in the Scripture that leads to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit uh, is a person. And there are several uh, uh, indicators and several um, parameters that establish without failure that the Holy Spirit uh, is a person. Uh, The first thing I would say uh, is that when you look into Scripture at the Holy Spirit, you'll find that He uh, has the characteristics of that which constitute the essential personality. And what I mean by that is that 
any person must have at least three things to be called a person. If any entity has these three characteristics, they're a person. For example, every person must have intelligence, you must have emotions or feelings, and you must have volition or will. If a being has volition or will, he can choose. If he has emotions and feelings, and if he can reason and has intelligence, that is what constitutes a person. Now, the wind doesn't have a will, it doesn't have uh, feelings, it doesn't have intelligence, okay? Uh, mm -hmm. A force, uh, like fire or atomic energy, it doesn't have a will, it doesn't have emotions, it doesn't have intelligence, it's not a person. So the best thing is just look in the Bible and see if the Bible indicates that the Holy Spirit possesses intelligence, does he possess volition, does he possess emotions? And when you search the scriptures, you discover to your delight that these three characteristics of personality are features of the personality of the Holy Spirit. Look at First um, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, and it gives you an idea that he has a mind and he has intelligence. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Clearly, the Spirit has a mind that he understands the will of God. Uh, so this cannot be a force. This is something that has the capacity to understand and comprehend and know what God's will is, quite frankly. So clearly, he has uh, intelligence. Look at Romans 8.27. Romans 8.27 And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Again, the Spirit has a mind, okay? So that means he has intelligence. And uh, he that searches God, the Father searches the mind of the Spirit to know what, 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 how, how to intercede for the saints. But notice the element there of intelligence and mind. Look at John fourteen twenty six as well. John fourteen twenty six reads as follows. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. And bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said. And then 15, verse 26. 15, verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Okay, and then there's another passage that he would guide you into all truth. So how, uh, if, if he's not a person, how is he going to teach you? How is he going to guide you? Mm -hmm. how is he, gonna, he must know truth to impart truth to you. I mean, atomic energy can't impart truth to you because it doesn't know what truth is. It can't. So that, uh, fire can't do that. Only a person can know truth to impart that truth and teach you that truth and bring truth to your remembrance. Uh, only a per So he has intelligence. There's clear, no question about that. But not only he has intelligence, he has emotions. He has sensibilities. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Yeah, again, if you're gonna, you, you can't grieve the atomic energy, you can't grieve fire, you can't grieve uh, a power, 
you you grieve a person, mm. uh, and that should and, and and to grieve means to to make sorrow sorrowful. So if he can be made sorrowful, so that and, and that he can withdraw himself, and that's why you don't grieve him because when the Holy Spirit is grieved and he's sor- made sorrow, he withdraw himself rather than uh, guiding you and controlling you and, and and influencing your life. He withdraws himself into silence, and I think substantially that's what's happened to the church today that we've grieved him into silence today. To be very honest with you, wow. so he's not playing the active role he should play, and that's why we need repentance more than anything else. We don't need all this laughter and all this entertainment in the church. What we need is a genuine, authentic, repentant movement to bring people back to God uh, so that the spirit who's been grieved, we know, I wouldn't say telling that we're sorry, but we, we, we grieve over the fact that we have uh, broken him down so much and been leading such great sorrow because of the way we live, the way we treated him. But he can be grieved. He has emotions. We have a question coming in from Trinidad. Good night, Pastor. Quick question. The spiritual Baptist proclaimed to get certain gifts after mourning the gift of divination that they possess is this of the holy spirit and how do they have the ability to tell you about your past present and future well divination if you again take that word you're using going to the new old testament you find that divination is part of the occult and no person in the belonging to the the people of god were to practice divination so when you have a modern movement that is now talking about being endowed with gift and going through the, the what is called the period of mourning, and then they come back where they seem to have insight into your past, your present, and future. You know of one thing that is not of God. They are they are now embracing another spirit, but not the Holy Spirit and not the Spirit of God. That's a movement you stay away from. When I was in um, in Saint Vincent, um, they have the same spiritual Baptist movement in Saint Vincent. And I can tell you quite frankly that uh, the guy who is supposed to be going in mourning don't go in mourning. They do a lot of things that uh, are rightly improper, morally improper, uh, in that kind of a thing. But you stay away from that kind of any kind of a movement that tell you you got to go through a period of mourning and you get this place and you do this and do the next thing and then you're going to have insight into the future about people. That is not scriptural whatsoever. That is called the occult system, and that is putting you in connection not with the Holy Spirit but uh, an infernal spirit that uses that capacity to trap people into the occult movement. So I would say to you that that, that, is, not, that is not biblical, that's not scriptural, it's not supported in the Bible, and I would say to people that is something you need to get out of if you're engaged in that kind of an activity. In the last two minutes of this episode of That's Truth, what else would you like to say about the Holy Spirit? Well, we just saw that he has intelligence. We just saw that he has emotions and affection. He can be affected. I, I want to show one that he has a will. Look at First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. First Corinthians 12 and verse 11. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit dividing to every man severally as he will. Yeah. If you read chapter 12, Nathan, it's about spiritual gifts. Okay. And it's saying to you that the Spirit distributes gifts to believers as He wills. See? That's why this scam about naming and claiming that you want a gift, you can get that gift and claim it, it's just a scam. That's what it is. Because it's the Holy Spirit that sovereignly decides what spiritual gift I am given and what spiritual gift you are given. Uh, Corinthians meant that very clear. It is His will to either give you a gift 
of, of preaching, a gift of teaching, a gift of helps, a gift of administration, uh, a gift of, 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 of uh, preaching. He gives that gift. And in some cases, he may give a person the gift of speaking in tongues, but he must also in that church give the gift of interpretation. He sovereignly decides who has what gifts. That's his will. Uh, he exercises that kind of will. So he not only has intelligence, he has emotions. And now we discover that he exercises his volition and his will in distributing to every believer what gift he has sovereignly chosen to give to that church. And you know in Romans, it makes it very clear that every single born-again believer has at least one spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit gives to that person. Now, a gift is not a natural talent. People have natural talents. But a spiritual gift is a gift to be used within the church. Uh, so when you look at those three things, Nathan, clearly that those are the marks of personality and uh, a force or a power or an influence or virtue doesn't have intelligence, it doesn't have emotions, and it doesn't have will. Is there any biblical evidence or pattern to make us believe that the Holy Spirit could take that gift away from us if we don't use it or if we misuse it? You know, the verse in Scripture says that the gifts of uh, gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Okay. And I think that uh, I know of people who went away from the Lord, had a particular gift. They still have the gift, but they've been put on the shelf. The, the gift was taken away from the sense it's not being used. But believe you me, they could preach the same way they used to preach, but just know that they've been put on the shelf. Mm. Thank you for listening to That's Truth. Have a Merry Christmas from us here at the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and stay safe. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.